In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. All right, everyone. It's time for a mid-season review. How's Lent been going for you? Have you been keeping any disciplines that you set for yourself about a month ago? Did any of you give up desserts? And wonder why in the world the Girl Scouts always sell Girl Scout cookies at this time of year? <laughs> Maybe you took something on this Lent, a devotional time, or some sort of spiritual reading or practice. How's that going? Maybe you didn't take anything on at all. You're wondering what we're talking about. Welcome to the church. <laughs> Today's the game changer in our season of Lent. It's time to review where we've been and look forward to where we're going. Traditionally, the church begins the season of Passion Tide in these days. The Church of England still does it. There are churches all around the world that still do it. The American church has kind of fallen out of practice. But it's the time when we begin to move through the desert seeing the cross in sight. And looking to the cross, recognizing the reality of sin and death in our own lives, in the world around us. I found that at this time in the season of Lent, sometimes those disciplines can begin to seem kind of futile, like exercises that just seem to be simply rules we've set for ourselves. You may be asking, what's the point of all of this? We may even start to see religion or Christianity as another set of rules, another set of expectations that we try to follow, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. And when we think about sin in our lives, if I asked you to start talking about sin in your life, I know what I do. I start listing off the laundry list, all the ways I've fallen short. We may just even go back to our old ways this time in Lent, because none of this has really changed our hearts. Today we encounter a people whose hearts had not really changed. The people that Jeremiah was speaking to, prophesying to. 30 chapters in, in the story of God's people, Jeremiah has pointed out their many sins, given them the laundry list. He calls them to repent. He threatens punishment. He reminds them these are the rules. And over and over again, that young prophet Jeremiah, pointing out where God's people have gone astray, demanding that they turn from their ways, only laments that these people will not turn from their ways. They haven't done it in the past. They're not doing it now. Paul Tillich wrote in his book, The Eternal Now, of sin with a capital S. Sin as a power that controls world and mind, persons and nations. Sin's more than just a trespassing of a list of rules. All sins are manifestations of sin. Alienation, estrangement, inner conflict. 
And all of us have that place that we have to face. So what is that place for you? The capital S sin. What are you gripping tightly onto? Where are you trying your hardest in your life to make a change? Either in your own life or the life of the world around you. The prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of all these unchanged, hardened hearts, begins to speak in a new way. He starts to talk about a new deal, a new covenant between God and God's people. He speaks the word of the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Father Michael reminded me this week that the law the people knew was written in stone, chiseled on hard stone. Jeremiah was talking about writing the law on soft, malleable, changeable hearts. It's a big difference. So what would renewed relationship with God look like in your life? I believe it's only when God reaches the soft, malleable places in our hearts that anything really changes. Three times, a father tried to get his son to stop stealing comic books. His son Matthew started this comic book collection, and when he couldn't get them fast enough by buying them, well, he began stealing them. Three times the father used the old law, trying his best to change him. Three times he was the fool. The first time the father found out that Matthew was stealing, he'd stolen from a public library. So the father figured, shame the kid. Called up the librarian. All right, let's make a deal here. I'm going to bring the kid back. He's going to return the books and apologize. And when he does, would you please kind of, well, chastise him? He thought the Lord would look down on Matthew, that he'd feel very uncomfortable when the librarian chastised him. So Matthew came in, brought the library books, said his piece, and she said, Matthew, Matthew. She was very good. <laughs> She's an excellent librarian. Do you know what you've done? She looks at him with a steel eye. You'll never do that again, right? The second time the father caught Matthew stealing comic books, he tried a different tactic. He used the word of God, opened it up to the Ten Commandments. Look. Thou shalt not steal, Matthew. And he proceeded to read all of the commandments. And then, for good measure, he took Matthew's comic books and built fire. And one at a time, burned those precious comic books. Matthew, does this remind you of the fires of hell? He'll never steal comic books again, the father thought. The third time Matthew stole comic books was while they were at church. 
at church during the communion, Matthew snuck out, went around the corner, and stole some comic books. Well, that seemed more desperate than ever to the father. So he decided that it was time to do something different. And here's what he finally decided to do. After church, he took Matthew into his study and spanked him. He laid him over his knees. The father decided that in that moment, his son should feel the pain that he was feeling in his heart. He told the son why he was doing it. That in this position, he had no other choice. He had to spank him. The first swat came down hard. And when it did, the father felt his entire body stiffen. And I don't know why, people, but it was that, it was that stiffening that went right to the father's heart. It made him break down on the inside. He gave his son maybe four or five good, solid swacks on the butt. Because he was so stiff. He was aboard. And as soon as he was done, he left the room. And he broke down sobbing. Sobbing tears. The father's wife came to comfort him in his sorrow, put her arms around him. He just cried at the thing he had done. Then he got himself together and went back into the room. A number of months later, while the family was driving in the car, out of nowhere, Matthew says to his father, Dad, do you know why I stopped stealing comic books? And he had. He'd stopped stealing comic books. The father said, yeah, I finally spanked you. He said, what? He looked at his father and said, no, it's because you cried. In our time, in Jeremiah's time, in Jesus' time, in all times, there is brokenness. There is sin. The only law that makes a difference in the face of sin is the one that touches our hearts. So what's that place of brokenness in your life? The thing that just keeps happening over and over again. You may be thinking, what am I supposed to do next in the face of this inner conflict, this estrangement? If I think about the cross, all I can do is lament this reality of sin in my life. Jesus calls us to go there. Go to the darkest places of our brokenness. Go and to that place of sin, that place of estrangement. Because by Jesus' death, Jesus teaches us how to die. He doesn't call us to death on the cross, but to a different kind of death. Not mortal death, but a death to our old understandings. A death to the rigid old rules chiseled on our hearts 
the rigid old ways of doing that harden us and all around us calls us to a softening of our hearts to a new way of being. This death is the only place where life can emerge. And we only see Jesus when we see it through eyes that are not our own when it comes to sin and brokenness. And this is good news. Jesus died so that we might discover how to die to ourselves, to see the brokenness through the eyes of others in relationships, to live. As one person in the congregation put it this week, through Jesus' glorification, that's through his death and resurrection, Jesus not only conquered the forces of evil, but he made them agents of his own victory. Jesus says in the gospel today that it's in letting go of power, of control, of old ways of doing things, of love for the selfish, short-lived pleasures of this world. It's letting go of these, looking for something more. Letting go ultimately brings life. Jesus likens his life to a grain of wheat. And either way, that grain of wheat will die, one way or another. Jesus living incarnate in this world would die. We too, one way or another, will die. Michael Coffey asks in his poem, what to do with your one grain of wheat? Either way, you're gonna die, clutching your seed in your fist, Buried in your Sunday suit, the lid sealed shut with a rubber gasket, watertight, lifetime guarantee, impermeable to the forces of nature. And the blasted thing sprouts up, and its pale stem pushes through your dried fingers and urges upward, straining for sunlight until it bumps the steely casket lid bends and arcs downward, finally surrendering. Either way, you're going to die. You can open your hand and let loose the grain of love you bear. You can open your protected soul to life and death and mystery in the breathable air. You can plant your seed in the welcoming earth, and die to your fear and let something grow. When you are buried like the seed, it is free to uncontrollably break through the soil and let the sun kiss it to life and sprinkle the earth with a thousand new grains. Either way, you're gonna die. But if you let your seed go and die before you die, there will be wheat and flour enough to feed the hungry world, to bake bread with holy wild yeast. And that hungry world gives thanks for your small grain to the one who made you to die for the fruit of love. Jesus, help us to let go 
that we might glorify you with the small grain that is our life. Amen.